Amen. You can be seated. I actually originally had planned on walking up to the song Rocky Top, as um, Sean and I are the only two Tennessee fans at City Church, but um, instead I thought it was very appropriate, since um, Tennessee didn't play very well and had a horrible line of scrimmage, that we would end James talking about suffering. So very appropriate this morning, I feel like, that the Lord has put this uh, message on my heart, and I am grateful to uh, close out this letter that we have been in for a while from James in James chapter 5. Speaking of sports, uh, a a few years ago, at at the turn of the century, ESPN did this uh, Sports Century Top 100 list. It was the top 100 most influential athletes in American history. Not just the athletes who won the most championships on the court, or played the best on the field, but those who made an impact, an influence. The number one athlete in the 20th century ESPN ranked was Michael Jordan. The number two athlete was Babe Ruth, which I find very appropriate for both of them because we don't use them just as nouns. We almost use them as adjectives to describe other athletes, right? They're the Michael Jordan of their sport, or they're the Babe Ruth of their time, right? So, like, I totally get the one and two. Number three, actually, though, was Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali, the great heavyweight champion boxer, the the boxer who had a personality really larger than life. Born Cassius Clay in Louisville, Kentucky. He he came from a tough background. He grew up to be a world champion. And man, you remember he had a huge, huge personality. He had sayings like, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, right? Rumble, young man, rumble. Like that was Ali. He had fast hands, fast feet, and even a faster mouth. And one of my favorite stories of Muhammad Ali is that he got on an airplane to fly somewhere, and the pilot came on like they always do and say, passengers, please fasten your seatbelts. And as the flight attendant is going down the aisle and saying, you know, hey, make sure you buckle up, this kind of stuff, she comes across the world champ. And she looks at him and says, sir, you need to fasten your seatbelt. And without missing a beat, Muhammad Ali says, ma'am, Superman doesn't need a seatbelt. And the flight attendant looked back at him and said, yeah, and Superman doesn't need a plane either. (laughs) The point of this is that, like Muhammad Ali, we can have a lot of pride in ourselves. We can puff ourselves up. We can almost at times think we're superhuman. In fact, we live in an era now where we'll tell you, man, if, if you just have enough grit, if you just have enough gumption, if you just have enough self-confidence, you can get through anything, right? Technology even helps us with this. And so we live in a world surrounded. It's like, man, it is all on you. If you just have enough positive thinking, man, life will be easy and good. The problem is we're not superhuman, and neither was Muhammad Ali. Because no matter how much pride we have, no no matter how much positive thinking we can come up with, man, when suffering, true suffering, comes knocking at the door, our ideals tend to fall flat. That's the problem. The problem is when suffering happens, it exposes our pride. And so if that's the problem, And we're not the answer. What James is going to say this morning is this, that we need a new solution. We need a better solution. We need a solution that is everlasting. So with that, 
Turn over to James chapter 5, or if you have the little books, uh, flip over to those. I want to kind of end this because this is the very end of James. I want to kind of quickly, quickly recap uh, the letter here that James is the half-brother of Jesus. He has seen the risen Savior, right? Like, this is not something he thought of. It is something he experienced. And he is leading this, this church, kind of the church of Jerusalem. And James knew that Jesus was real. And as he is leading this church, he's going to continue to preach this message to all those that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the real Savior. And so he's writing this letter to the 12 tribes who are dispersed. They're in Syria and Palestine and Asia Minor. And and he's writing this letter to remind them of the authentic faith of what they have in Jesus. Because they are surrounded by uh, religion. They're surrounded by Judaism. James believed this so much that in 62 AD, he would later be stoned for his faith. And so as he writes this letter, he originally starts with this idea of trials, and then he talks about suffering. So I want to start there because it kind of bookends perfectly what James's whole letter is about. So let me go back first to chapter one. He says this, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith, remember that word faith there, produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect. It's not lacking anything, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, let him commune with God who gives generously to all without reproach, to all who made right, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That he, again, he is reminding them that they have a powerful witness that, listen, they're going to go through trials. They're going to go through trials. But man, they can consider it all joy. They can consider it all joy because they are not alone in their trials. That's why I love James. He reminds us of the hardship. James does not sugarcoat anything. So he starts the letter that way, and he's going to end that way because James knows this. James knows that growth never happens alone or by staying in safe waters. That's what James knows. And so that's why he mentions it in chapter 1, and that's why he's going to end in chapter 5 with suffering. So James chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And so what James starts out here is this word, right? Is anyone anyone among you suffering? Suffering. What James is getting at is this isn't fake suffering. See, we live in a time where people want to test themselves. I heard of a... A race, Billy uh, is gone this weekend because he ran uh, his marathon in Indianapolis yesterday. And what a great accomplishment for him to do that. It was, it was a true hard race with bad weather and all that kind of stuff. So next week when you see him, congratulate, that, congratulate him on that because it's a big accomplishment. But I heard of a race one time that's not a normal marathon, which is enough. But I heard a race that 
there are going to be runners who run an ultra marathon of 100K, and they had to do it in 24 hours. And when I heard about this, I was like, why in the world would anyone want to do this? And when they asked the runners what motivated them, here's what they said. We wanted to test ourselves when suffering happened. And I thought, (laughs) part of me is like, man, that's great. If that's what you want to do, you go do it. But the other part of me thought, we can live in such a privileged time where people will take money, pay someone where they can enter a race to run that distance to test themselves. And a part of me just chuckled because I wonder if you went to parts of Africa or Southeast Asia or the Middle East where there are people who may not have access to the luxuries we have, cars or even a bicycle or something like that, who have to travel long distances to get somewhere and you drop these runners in their villages and said, hey, I just want to tell you, here's what they do for fun. I just wonder what the reaction would be. We live in a time where there's this fake suffering sometimes. I think of my own dad. I grew up in rural Tennessee. Ever hunted and fished in one red light town? Like, that's, that's how I grew up, right? Eight years old, you get your first 22 rifle kind of deal. And my dad, we didn't go hunting a lot. We did a few times, and we didn't go a lot. And I remember asking my dad, all my friends were doing, I said, Dad, why don't, why don't we go do this more? And he looked at me and he said, Clayton, I grew up dirt poor. Like, I needed to go kill squirrels and rabbits and those type of things to have meat. He said, we had rabbits and chickens in the backyard. Like, we didn't go to the grocery because we couldn't afford that. He said, so the minute I made it, the minute I could go to a store and buy that, why in the world would I ever go back to a tree stand? Right? I mean, it's this idea. I saw this last week in Portland that that we were at a conference, the Art of Teaching conference, and here are all these people um, who are doing okay. They're doing okay. And um, man, let's just say the style was a, um, a mix between homeless truckers and factory workers. Like this idea that I think of my dad that worked his whole life in blue collar jobs where one day he didn't have to wear that anymore, that he could actually go dress up a little bit. And yet people are choosing that. And that's fine. That's a style thing. I'm not knocking that. I'm not judging that. I just think we live in a time where the world says, hey, man, if you're doing well, you're kind of comfortable, you should go test yourself. And James is like, I ain't, I'm not talking about that type of suffering. I'm talking about legit suffering. The word in Greek is more of a discomfort or a tribulation. It's not fake. It's a true discomfort. It's a real dark suffering. And James is saying, man, When you and I face that type of suffering, that type of hardship, we are not to have self-pity or anger. We are not to complain. No, there's one solution to that problem, and that's prayer. And if you're not in that boat, if you're cheerful, if you're doing well, man, there's one reaction to that, to sing praise. James understood in this whole section the power of prayer. The power of prayer. That's why he says in verse 14, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, 
anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith, there's that word faith again, will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. The idea here is what James is getting at is in in the time of the first century here, they didn't have a CVS or a Walgreens or a Kroger that they could run to to, uh, fill up a prescription. They didn't have doctors like we have access to doctors in that sense. And so listen, what James is saying here is, listen, when you are suffering, when you are sick, when you are at the end of your rope, Man, you pray. The elders in oil here, this, this part of the text sometimes is, is misunderstood, but all it's really saying here is it's, it's not a medicinal thing or, or a sacramental thing. It's a symbolic reaction that the elders, as they put oil, what they're really doing is they are setting that person apart for the Holy Spirit to come down, for God to show up in power. This section is not a magic genie that you rub on that God just grants you whatever you want. That's not what James is saying here. He's not saying it's a formula that you do A and B and you always get the guaranteed result of C. No, what James is getting at, the narrative here in this whole section is there is power in prayer. There is power in prayer. And so you should believe in that power but it's not a formula, it's a relationship. I love what John Blanchard says. He says, the prayer offered in faith is circular in shape, and it begins and ends in heaven in the sovereign will of God. It's the sovereign will of God. It is, let your will be done. When you come to the end of your rope, when you are in that dark place of suffering, James' solution is pray in faith that God will show up and rescue you. Here's the thing. It doesn't guarantee God is going to heal you, even though he might and he can. But it does guarantee that he will hear you. That he will hear you. That's why right before this, James reminds us to be patient in our suffering. I love what John, 1 John 5 says in this, that starting in verse 14, he says, And this is the confidence, the assurance that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, not our own will, but his will, he will hear us. That echoes what James is getting at. Here And I love that Scripture, you can interpret Scripture with Scripture because God he, he shows up all around the Bible with this type of theme. And one of my favorite themes is Hebrews 11. This shows the power of God, that those who are communing with God, man, they can have success. They can believe without doubt that God can rescue them. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the first part of Hebrews 11, 17 different times, it has this, this roll call of faith, this hall of fame faith, right? These would be the, 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 the men and women who, if, if there was a top 100 list that we did, right, of the most influential Christians kind of deal. Like these people would be on it. They're household names, especially to the Jewish audience that, that James is writing to. 17 different by faith statements. By faith, Abel. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Isaac and Jacob. Joseph and Moses. 
By faith, Passover happened. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. By faith, the Red Sea destroyed the Egyptians. And by faith, Rahab was restored. And he continues in Hebrews 11, and I'll put it on the screen, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they may rise again to a better life. Listen, that'll preach. Like, I, I am serious. Like, you go preach that and you'll have a crowd because who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want that? God did those things by faith, by prayer, with the relationship that those people had with him. He showed up and he healed them. He stopped the mouse alliance. But what I love about Scripture is it doesn't leave us there. Because sometimes there are people who genuinely pray that and the sick person doesn't get better. And the suffering doesn't stop. And people go, wait a minute, I just prayed in faith. And where's God? That's why I love the rest of Hebrews 11, where he says, verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, all those who were going through that, though condemned through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, they apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What the author of Hebrews and James is getting at this morning in our suffering is this. What do you do in all circumstances, whether God rescues you or whether you stay in your suffering, whether you receive what is promised or whether you don't? James says, you pray. You commune with God. I love what Dr. Charlie Dates says. He says, Prayer is the opening act of faith. It's not just an idea, but an action. It's an action that we are to pray. And James himself knew this. One scholar described James's knees as knees like a camel. You ever seen a camel's knees? They're not pretty. No one's like, wow, look at a camel's knees. Like they're, they're all wrinkly and beat up and, and they're hard. And that's how James's knees were described like a runner's feet who runs that ultra marathon, right? It's all calloused and broken up and, or, or a day laborer's hands with all the blisters and all that. Like James's knees were described that way because James's knees were worn out because James walked the talk with his knees. James was a man who knew prayer worked because he was in prayer over and over and over. 
So this morning, I love you enough to tell you this. How are your knees? How are your knees? How often do you drop to your knees and pray and commune and be in relationship with the Lord as James was? See, that's what suffering a lot of times does. It pushes our pride out of the way, thinking we have all the answers, and we go, I've got nothing left, and it almost drops us to our knees. James continues because he knew the power of prayer, but he also knew the power of community. James 5, verse 16 because it is good to trust the Lord in the physical, but hey, we also have to get the spiritual right. So he says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of, righteous, of a righteous person has great power at its, is at, as it is working. Excuse me. Listen, what James is getting at here is, listen, you should pray. And I don't know anyone who comes to church and is like, oh, I shouldn't pray. Right? Like, I don't, I'm not surprising anyone with that one, I don't think. I would encourage you to pray more. I need to pray more. But man, James, I told you, he doesn't, he doesn't hold back. Like he gets into our hearts. He reads your text messages like he knows us. Because here's what he says. Yes, pray, but listen, you need to be in community. He says, call on the elders. Why? You can't call on the elders if you're not part of the church. Like you need to be a part of something. And in that community, he continues because there is physical healing and prayer. Absolutely. If in God's sovereign will, he decides to do that. But then he tells us, here's what we are also to do. We are to confess our sins to one another. Now, I know a lot of people, I've been in church a long time, and I know a lot of people are like, I mean, I love praying together, and that is awesome. We should. I don't know a lot of people who confess their sins to one another, me included. I think we can confess our sins to God, and we should. And there is grace and forgiveness because of the blood of Jesus Christ. But James is saying, listen, I want you to also confess your sins to one another. Whoa, James. That's a little personal. I mean, Jim said a quote this week I remember that, that I love that there is no greater place to hide sometimes than in a group. We can be that way. We can sit every Sunday in here, or we can be a part of a small group, and man, you should do all that. You should. I should. But how often are you confessing to one another? Listen, and I get it. I get it. It's hard. Man, people, people can judge. People can gossip. People can be hard to trust inside the church. But it's why Paul reminds us when he writes to the, to the, to the church in, in Galatia, in Galatians 6.2, when he talks about bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Why? For if anyone thinks he is something, right? Anyone thinks he's so much better than everyone? When he is nothing, he deceives himself. So James says, listen, we are to confess our sins to one another, which is hard. I think about when I was a kid, I one time lied, and not one time, but one time I remember I lied to my parents. And I think I was in middle school and I was a new believer and I had lied and I had, I had kept this lie going for like a couple of weeks. And I'm like, I, I got it, I fooled them. Like they don't know. But little by little, man, this just started eating me up inside. 
And it was hard. Like it was just eating me alive. And, and each night I, it was just harder to sleep and harder to sleep. And then eventually, after a couple of weeks, my parents, who I thought was, I was going to fool, I wasn't fooling, they found out and they called me out on it. And yeah, absolutely, like they lovingly disciplined me, they, they encouraged me that there was forgiveness, but, but they said, listen, lying has consequence. But you know what happened? When I laid my head down that night after crying and, oh, I'm so sorry, you know what I had for the first time in a couple weeks? Peace. Because I had gotten it off my chest. Now, I wish I would have done that on my own accord and not them pressing in. But have you ever done that? You ever walked around with a secret like that? A sin you're carrying around, a burden you have, and it's eating you up inside, right? I mean, I think about in the church, right? There are people who struggle with pornography. There are people within the church who really, honestly, they steal time from their workplace or they use the personal expense account to, to just slide a little bit to themselves. That the, It's this idea of the rot is starting in the small stuff, that they're doing this and they think no one is noticing and they're getting away with it, but inside it is starting to eat at their heart. And James says, you want the solution to that? Man, you confess to one another, you pray with one another, and if you do, if you do, there is healing. There is freedom. So I asked you just a second ago, how are your knees? My other question this morning is, how often do you confess to someone else? How often do you do that? I'll be honest, again, when I looked at my own heart, my own life, I go, man, I confess a lot to God, but I don't know how much I pull someone aside and say, hey, I just need to confess some stuff here. I need to be vulnerable enough to do that. James continues because then he uses an example out of all of this. He says, verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth, <clears throat> excuse me, bore its fruit. That this comes from 1 Kings 17 and 18, that Elijah man, he, when, when you're writing to a Jewish, Jewish audience here, like he was the Muhammad Ali. Like, everybody knew who this guy was. Like, Elijah is known as a prophet. You think of the Mount of, of Transfiguration where Jesus is up there, and you got, you got Elijah, and you got Moses. Like, Elijah was known, right? Like, he had seen amazing things happen. He knew the power of God. I always think of the way Elijah ended his life, and it said God just caught him up. I mean, I imagine, if I preached so well today that I walked up the stage and went towards Joe, and I just went on up to heaven, I think you might pull your phones out for that. Like, I think that might be Instagram worthy. Like, my pastor was preaching and he went to heaven. Like, that's Elijah. And he uses the example of Elijah here because Elijah is in the midst of, as a prophet, coming against Ahab and Jezebel, who is ruling the nation of Israel. And they are, just such say, not great people. They are sinful. And to a point where they believe in Baal and they are provoking the Lord, it said. And Elijah says, hey, it's not going to rain anymore. And I just imagine, man, I'm sure Ahab and Jezebel and those around were probably like, this guy, you, you got to be kidding me. Not going to rain? Get out of here with that. Probably mocked him and laughed. And they probably stayed in that posture for a couple of weeks in their pride. And then month after month went by and they started looking at the sky and went, 
hmm, you know, it hadn't rained in a while. And the heavens dried up and it didn't rain. And this was a big deal. This was a big deal because they lived in a agrarian society where farming and crops needed rain. Everything relied on rain and crops and food. It was, their whole economy was that way. It's like today, listen, it's like today if someone came and said, hey, listen, for three and a half years in America, we're not gonna have electricity, we're not gonna have internet, and we're not gonna have satellites. What in the world would happen? I mean, how would your job be affected? How about going to the grocery store? How would your life be different if that didn't happen? See, if that was the case in America until 2025, it would crush everything. And so when this is happening, when Elijah says this to Ahab, it gets their attention because it's everything they depended on. It's everything they trusted. It's everything they hoped in. And here comes the suffering. Because Elijah prayed. And not only did he say he prayed one time, he said it kept praying. That it wasn't a one-time deal. And then eventually he prays and the heavens open. And the earth bore fruit. Man, it's a picture of God's sovereignty. That's what James is getting at here. To remind them that there is power in prayer Because when you talk to God, listen, you're not talking to the bank teller or the Chick-fil-A employee that's taking your order. They may be great, but they're not God. You're not talking to the mayor of Alpharetta. You're not talking to the governor of Georgia. And you're not talking to the president of the United States. You're talking to God. The one who tells the rain to hide and it listens. The one that tells the rain to be turned on like a faucet and it drops. And if I'm a little enthusiastic about that, I want you to understand there is power. That God can make everything move if he chooses to. Sometimes it's through our suffering that God has to get our attention. And when it happens, you pray. And that's the same power that Elijah had. Elijah that when the altar of Baal was built and they're like, your God, our God's gonna be better than your God kind of deal and he's gonna light our altar before, on fire before yours, Elijah. And Elijah soaks it so much in water and man, God shows up with his power because Elijah cried out to him continuously in prayer. Elijah, again, is a major prophet. This would have gotten the audience's attention. And then James finishes here, verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The Greek word there for wanderer is Plato. This Plato deal is where we get the word planet from. Right? It's this idea, this, this planet of, of floating in, in, in desolation. It is kind of out to its side. It's just kind of floating. That's how this person is described as they have wandered away from the truth. But you know what it says? If anyone does that, someone brings him back. You know the reason it says that? It's because there's power in prayer and there is power in community. 
And as they bring them back to the truth, the point of this is not that someone will wander away. The point of this is as you bring them back, they can be restored. They can be restored. In community, we need people to point us to truth. We need people to pray alongside of us. We need to confess to one another and help us not wander like a planet floating in space. I can say all that. All of it. And it's true, and it's good, and it's great information. But I've got a story I want to share with you to close that shows this faith in action, which is kind of the whole letter of James. I just read a book called Elusive Hero. It's about President John F. Kennedy. And in this book, in the last year of Kennedy's life, May of 1963, in America, we were very divided. We think we're divided now, man. This, this was an ugly time. There was violent backlash happening through segregationists, and Kennedy had become convinced that it was time to finally act. And so on June 19th, 1963, he submitted, didn't pass, but he submitted civil rights legislation that this legislation protected all Americans from voting rights and legal standing and educational opportunities and access to public facilities. And that summer, there was a march on Washington and we listened to these great speeches. We always think of the I Have a Dream speech by Martin Luther King Jr. and, and other heroes from here in Atlanta like John Lewis, others. And when just when they thought progress was made, on September 3rd, a violent backlash happened from one of the leaders of the segregationist movement. It happened in Alabama with their governor, a guy named George Wallace. And Wallace didn't like the progress, so to make things worse, he attempted to close schools because he wanted to block desegregation. And more bombs went off in the city and riots erupt. And Wallace persuaded the mayor of Birmingham to block the entry of the schools for African-American children. Six days later, after September 9th, an event would occur that would shift things, that would get people's attention. That fall, September morning, just like we have gathered here this morning, people came to worship at the 16th Baptist Church in Birmingham. And as they mingled, as they, they kind of did what we do, they got coffee and, and people were dressed in their Sunday best and it was youth day at the church, so there was a lot of children there. It was almost how we do family worship where they were going to bring the kids in. Because, man, yeah, George Wallace was going to block the schools, but schools were still going to start. And just before 11 o'clock, as they were beginning to rise to pray, the congregation was knocked to the ground. When dynamite exploded under the stairs at the front of that church. ripping the flesh off of four little girls. 14-year-old Addie Mae Collins, Denise McNair, Carol Robinson, and 11-year-old Cynthia Wesley. I read that in that book, 
And I imagined how I would feel if I was here this morning and that happened and my daughter had that happen to her. Thinking how much does this have to keep going on? How much longer do we have to suffer kind of deal? When Kennedy heard about this, he reached out to the leaders of the black community. He also reached out to the white community. And here's what was interesting. Birmingham, Alabama was one of the most church cities in America. And when Kennedy met with white business leaders and clergymen, church leaders, to listen to their perspective after 47 different bombs had gone off in Birmingham since 1947. They didn't blame the Ku Klux Klan that set off the bomb. They blamed Martin Luther King Jr. and Pastor Andrew Young from Atlanta. And when the media asked Andrew Young, Andrew Young who eventually became the future ambassador to the United Nations, He would become the mayor of our city of Atlanta. He's a great man. He went back to his roots in the gospel as a pastor. They said, how in the world will you get through this? And he said, two things. We're going to keep praying. And we're going to keep being in community and do this together. That's how I know we'll get through it. In their darkest moments, when the light was very, 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 very dim, when it was very, very dark, when it was barely visible, the day when four little girls lost their lives in the basement of that church, in that suffering, the nation started paying attention. We serve a God who can move heaven and earth. What does God need to do in your life? I put those pictures up. You can see the emotion. That's real suffering right there. That's real suffering. When that suffering knocks, the action you take is prayer and community, believing that there is power in God in those spaces. So if you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, sing praise. Pray with faith. Listen, pray with knees like James. Get in community. If you're not in community, see me today. I'll help you get connected. Pray in that community with power that God can change circumstances. Listen, God in his sovereignty may not change your suffering, but Jesus who also suffered for you and I, and he does hear you, and he does love you, and he is going to continue to mature you and walk alongside you as you suffer. That's the letter of James. Faith in action, power in action. So this week, I hope you and I will not only pray that way, I hope we will do so believing, believing in that power.